You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm very excited to introduce you to April Bell. April is somebody who loves to solve problems. She's conducted more than 11,000 hours of empathy research through her boutique research agency, April Bell Research Group, working with many of the world's giant brands, including PepsiCo, Procter & Gamble, Hewlett-Packard, and Pfizer, just to name a few. She's observed the impact of empathy, not only on user experiences, but on personal and organizational transformation, and was inspired to write her first book, The Firestarter, Igniting Innovation with Empathy. Here today to talk about that with me and so much more is April Bell. Uh, April, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Thank you. April, tell me, where does your story as a writer begin? So funny. That's your first question. (laughs) (laughs) Because I never really thought of myself as a writer. You know how you identify as a certain type of person? I've identified as a researcher for, you know, almost 20 years. And I at the beginning of COVID began doing a lot of um, just empathy interviews with people who were experiencing COVID differently than me. I have friends all over the world. And and then I started interviewing um, people who were in corporate America because a lot of my business started to shut down since most of my interviews are in person. And so that road led me down the path of writing an online course. And I took some friends of mine, some executives through it. And they were like, this is a book. And I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) And they said, yes, it is. You need to write a book. And so they kept pestering me to do it. And I finally just said, okay, I'll go onto Facebook, see if I can find a, a book author coach. And that led me down the path of going through this program that was eventually a publishing program. And that's the book. <laughs> that's how it happened. And there, 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 there it is. But so now I'm curious because you mentioned you, you identify as a researcher and mm-hmm. uh, uh, in addition to identifying as a male, I do identify as a researcher as well. I've worked in you know the market. So this is the day job uh, market research industry since 1996. Um, how did you get into the market research industry? similar to how I became an author, I guess. <laughs> you fell into it? <laughs> I fell into it. Actually, uh, I, I was working for an energy company in Texas, and this was around the time of the deregulation of, of Texas electricity. And I was doing a lot of like soft skill leadership training, and that part of the company was going to pull back and be eliminated. And they built up this massive uh, marketing department, consumer marketing department. And the VP who had just come in from Procter & Gamble 
um, he was next door to me and I kept going into his office saying, I want a job in your group. And he said, you don't have the experience. You need a you know, master's from a top five university or you need at least six years in marketing. No. And so finally he, I kept pestering him. He said, I will put you under the statistics guy because you know a lot about what's going on. And so see what, see what you can do there. And so that's how it started. I, I started doing some of the more background and uh, more quantitative work. And then a consulting agency came in and the very first set of focus groups I went to, she's like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm quitting and I'm going to do that. And she goes, no, I can't hire you. And so it, it, eventually she did. <laughs> and that's how. Wow. So, you know, it's so funny, especially like when you talk about getting into like the qualitative side of our industry, um, yeah. and this is going to be a little inside baseball for my listeners, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't like just get out of school and get a job working as, you know, a qualitative researcher. Like you really do fall, you know, you know, you, you, you fall into it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I had a similar story. Like I was working at an ad agency and I was invited to watch some focus groups and I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. I could tell you it was for Citibank. Clint Clifford from Greenfield Consulting was the moderator. And I'm like, I need to be that person because that's what I want to mm-hmm. do. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life up until that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I was going to be a psychologist. And I mm-hmm. ended up taking a few years off of school and never went back for that degree. I did go back for an MBA. But um, isn't it just funny how we fall into this, this world as, as, as researchers? Yeah, it, you, you know what your story brought up for me. Um, I think that the focus groups were led by a moderator I used to work with um, at Ipsos, what became Ipsos, but um, her name's Elizabeth Jarose, and she was um, on the the Trumps. Uh, what was this, the thing he had? You're fired. What was that show? Uh, the, the Apprentice. The Apprentice. Yes, <laughs> she ended a beat on that, but she was so good, you know, in in what she did. And I was like, oh, I can see myself doing that. That is it. So is, I love that your story because it made me curious if you fell into it as well. I've heard very similar things from other researchers. Oh yeah, I, I totally fell into it. And then I, I studied everything I could um, about it because even though you want to do it, you can't just start doing it. So I. I wound up having a little career on the client side of the business. And then, um, you know, I was working for Unilever. And when Unilever left Connecticut to go to Jersey, I said, this is, I'm going to make my break and I'm going to moderate. And I I stayed on as a consultant for them and still do some work with them from time to time. But, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I I think about, you know, like life as a researcher um, and it involves a lot of writing because, you know, not only are we hired to, you know, run these discussions or interviews, we have to then do something with that. We have to turn those observations into some kind of insight for our clients. And writing is so much a part of that, isn't it? Yes. Well, and I think it's why I never really saw myself as a writer, because a lot of times, just to be totally transparent, I dreaded the part of writing a lot of the findings. What I enjoyed was um, the uncovering, like the emotional excavation, and then creating a story. Um, but a lot of times that story to me, um, it, it, it was it was challenging to put together. And so what I found interesting about this writing of this book is it's almost as if every story that I wrote over the last 18 years 
um, I had to retranslate into my own and it just kind of poured out of me a little bit. Like my writing process was very different than what I was told a lot of people do. Um, what I was told is, you know, if you can write a thousand words a, a week, then that would be a good pace. But the way that I write my research reports, you know, I'm writing in, 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 in a very uh, focused times where I just have to bang it out. And so I would go on a few day vacation and just write 20,000 words because that's more of what I'm, I'm used to. And it would just come right. out that way. Right. Yeah. No. How, it, how do you write? I'm so curious. Um, when I'm writing, when I'm writing a report, uh, it's much different than when I'm writing uh, a piece of fiction. So reports I put off um, and I used to never be this way. I found that I've become this way. I was working on a project. Gosh, that probably started. We started having conversations about it last April, like last mm -hmm. year this time. We just wrapped it um, this month. And I was dreading writing this report because yeah. I was I was working with another moderator on it. Um, and there was like a lot of moving pieces that involved a tremendous number of interviews and like really technical interviews, like physicians. Um, and I just didn't know where to start. And that was that was my issue. I there was there was so much to go through. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't taking notes like during those interviews, which I try not to do anyway, but I because I always try to listen versus process. Um, so I had to go back to transcripts and that was, you know, that, that's just a big, that's just a bear. Um, but, but there, from there, I just started with an outline. Uh, I started with an outline, um, started, you know, plugging in key findings and then, you know, not an efficient process. Cause I start, believe it or not, I start with like an Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and so I start there outlining all my notes from all the interviews. And then I, then I look at the columns as kind of slides or key findings. And I go from there. Mm -hmm. Um, when I write a novel, I always have a story in my head. Um, yes. and it's not fully fleshed out, but I know, you know, I, I know where the beats are. I know what's going to happen. I know what the twist is going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I will, I will start with an outline and I'll actually write it very linearly. Um, I know people who write, you know, the end first and they go to the middle and they go to the beginning. Um, for me, I do it very linearly, but I wind up having to go back to the beginning often because during the writing process, even though I have an outline, you know, I've changed so many things. I know these characters better. So I have to go back to the beginning and almost like, you know, flesh them out a little bit more. Yeah. But but for me, it's doing it every, when I'm writing a novel, it's every single day in the morning and in the evening. Interesting. Well, what you just brought up for me that helped me, it helped illuminate why I appreciated writing this book more than a lot of the reports I write is because I do the same thing. I'm first trying to find the patterns when I'm writing a report and then I create the story. But then in writing the book, I started with all the stories that I thought were important and had a point to them and then found the pattern. And for some reason that worked for me, you know, a little bit easier. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. You know, there's no, I mean, there's no wrong way to approach the writing mm -hmm. process. The, I guess the only wrong way is to just not do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, Which that also happened a lot. <laughs> I'm sure. And, and writer's block is, is a real thing. Um, did you find yourself dealing with writer's block when you're writing your book? Yeah, mostly at toward the end when I was trying to structure, you know, because 
you know, this whole thing was around empathy. I, I became very uh, much focused on wanting to uh, create the story of what I had determined about not only empathy for others, but also self-empathy and how it could create change for people as well as products. And um, I found that, you know, just like a big research report, there was so much that I wanted to talk about that just finding structure to it that would make sense became the most challenging. And that's where I, that's where I had writer's block. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, I want to go back a little bit and just understand where did your sort of interest in empathy come from? Was, is this something that you've always focused on as, as part of your research, um, sort of research offerings? Or, you know, I know you mentioned that you started having some specific conversations as a, as a result of the pandemic, but was your interest in empathy, with, you know, does it predate the pandemic? Slightly, it does. And I think it's because... I've always seen myself as being highly empathetic. And I recognized when I went through a divorce um, in 2018, 19, just you know, not too long before, that empathy for myself created an epiphany in much of the same ways that empathy for others creates epiphanies when we're creating products. I was, I was in uh, a session with a, my therapist. I was actually having her reflect back to me um, the way that I do in focus groups. And this thing happened that caused this crazy epiphany. And it, it's, you'll appreciate this as a researcher because she was asking me how I felt about something. I was complaining about someone, who knows? And, and I was like, you know, I wish he had not done that. I can't believe he did that, blah, blah. And she's like, okay, but how did it make you feel? And I was like, I just told you it was so, it was so annoying that he did that and blah, blah. blah. And she goes, yes, but how did you feel? And I literally could not express an emotion. So she texted me while we were talking this sheet of emojis so that I could put language. And I started laughing because it was the same damn sheet that I used in focus groups all the damn time <laughs> was it the 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 um the pictures of the uh, the yes. face yeah. yeah all you know and i'm like it's, it's so of course when, when something like that slaps you in the face when you recognize that you are unable to have um emotional expression in the same way that you thought that you were quite good at because that's what you you know are living every day um, it, it, it caused this ability for me to see an incongruence in who I was being professionally and who I, I was being personally. And, you know, I started, you know, really diving into Brene Brown and Kristen Neff, who talks about self-compassion and how um, much my own beliefs were driving my own stuckness. And how empathy, allowing myself to just uncover what was going on could actually create the changes I was wanting to make in my life. And so as a researcher, then I wanted to test it out on everybody else to see, is this true, valid, or is it just me, you know? So that's kind of how it evolves. Yeah. So, I mean, if you had to pick like a few big lessons you learned about yourself while going through the writing process, um, what were some of those things you learned about yourself? Um, it's, it, it's, 
some of it I wrote about one of every, I wrote the book I needed to write for myself and I'm hopeful it's helpful for others. But the, one of the biggest is letting go of perfectionism actually helps me move forward. And the way for me to let go of perfectionism is through connection. And so what I, I think a tendency of mine is to self-isolate and think I need to figure out in my head before I can move forward. And what I have learned is the more I could connect with others and, and showing up in vulnerability of like, I, I can't do this because it's not perfect. It allowed me to move into a place of um, at least taking a step. That was one. Mm. You know, you know, you mentioned vulnerability and, and, you know, you uh, invoked the name of Brene Brown earlier, um, mm -hmm. who, who talks a lot about vulnerability. Um, in your mind, what's the relationship between vulnerability and empathy? Mm -hmm. um, I think that being empathetic takes courage. And the reason it takes courage is because you have to be willing to let yours or others' emotions surface. And that means you have to kind of deal with your own. And so in that state of courageous, just being with what is without trying to change it, it is vulnerable. Like my daughter yesterday, she told me, we were, we were having an argument and she said, you know, I really felt stressed because you were pushing me and I wanted to, to, to tell you, but it was hard. And it's, it's, and she, and she said, it's hard to tell you this now. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so vulnerable, you know, for her to not only recognize how how hard it is to tell people how you feel, but also to admit I'm having a hard time even telling you, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so empathy, empathy creates the ability to be with what is without changing it. Um, I call it detachment, you know, cause we try so much when we're in, um, when, when we, when we, want something to happen or we have an opinion we, we we want to help or we want to care for others and so that helping sometimes um puts us into a space of wanting to change things and so when you go into a detached empathetic state you're actually being with something without trying to change it and that's very hard for us because we want to change what's in front of us usually yeah yeah we we have that tendency to, to want to problem solve and and, you know, I think with interpersonal relationships, um, romantic relationships, when we go into sort of problem solving mode, it's, it's not always the most helpful because, you know, th that other person may not need us to be the great problem solver. They just may need someone to, to listen to. Um, uh, I, at least I, I found that anyway. Um, I also find that it's, it's, there have been times where it's hard for that vulnerability to surface, um, for me to surface my own vulnerabilities. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone struggles, many people probably struggle with that. Um, but, but, and I think you're, you're spot on in that, 
you know, becoming vulnerable does take courage because we have to let the the wall down, so to speak, you know, let our defenses you know, kind of almost be defenseless um, when they're truly being vulnerable um, and truly being, you know, empathetic to, to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you brought up for me is I think that the reason it's counterintuitive to think about empathy as a pathway to problem solving is because we are taught to solve problems with what we know. And so if you think about having to get into this empathic state, you have to assume you don't know and you have to get curious because without that curiosity or then you're not really going to learn something new, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I thought what you were about to say, <laughs> and this is why I try not to, well, you know, I try to listen more than process, but um, is, you know, we're taught to learn uh, to make decisions on what we know versus how we feel um, with empathy kind of being for me more of a feeling than, than like knowledge or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's for sure true, right? In fact, the biggest problem I see going on right now is that we, we, are, we are so accustomed to suppressing emotion and um, it, it being an, an oppressive state that you know, that's when we honestly have a hard time emotionally regulating because if it's suppressed for too long, eventually emotion is going to rise up. But if you thought about emotion differently, that like emotion is actually a gift to give you information in order to create something new and used it as that, it actually does solve really big problems. I mean, you and I know that it, when we're innovating products, the way to the key to the kingdom is to find the emotional attachment associated with whatever's wanting to be created. because that gives a purpose or a point for it. And so if we use that, I think um, and elsewhere, we could use emotion for the same way. I mean, um, Dan, I've been, I've been studying a lot about um, this like bottom-up regulation and Dan Siegel talks a lot about it, about how we're usually just aware of our five senses, but when we allow like our bodily sensations and our emotional sensations and our mental sensations to kind of come together, these sixth, seventh and eighth sense, then we can actually create, you know, a more holistic way of thinking or solving a problem. And, and so I, I think, you know, again, you know, empathy is kind of a, a gateway to doing that. Yeah. You know, oftentimes um, I'll, I'll be with clients or I'll be taking a brief you know, from clients will be like, you know, we just need to get closer to our consumer. Um, we just want to understand them a little bit better. And I'm like, well, what are you willing to do um, to do that? Because, you know, your survey data is not going to get the job done. And then oftentimes, um, again, I have a quant background before jumping into qual. Um, it's easy for people to, to buy a report or to look up some, you know, do some desktop research or something. But for me, true innovative ideas and true and whether those ideas are you know uh, product ideas or advertising ideas communications ideas come from just feeling like you know who it is you're trying to design towards and and I don't think there's any better way of doing that than just giving people interactions with those people 
Um, you know, and, and I'm not talking about having them watch a focus group or something like that. And no, no slight to, to focus groups. I've made a living off of them, but, um, but just, you know, being in time, just spending time walking a store with somebody, walking mm-hmm. through their home, um, just listening, observing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how, how much of that work do you, do you get to do on a, on a regular basis where you're really, you know, putting clients in direct, you know, contact with the people they're creating for? Well, all the time before COVID. And what I found is that uh, in COVID, it's been more challenging because everyone's so strung out on, you know, Zoom fatigue that just getting close to anyone is, is you know, you're, you're, you're losing a dimension, if you will. Um, but I, I remember when you said what you said, one of the things you brought up for me is just this, this wonderful project with this amazing team who was in, they were a skincare team. And in 2018, I think for the first time ever, they decided they wanted to talk to, to men and to expand possibilities for their brand. But they had a lot of assumptions on, you know, what men wanted and liked when it came to the types of products they were selling. And I'll never forget the first home we went to in Chicago. And we had this like, amazing young man that we talked to and he was so articulate and complex in his thinking and how he wanted you know to 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 change things and you know it it, again it created so much epiphany for things that the the mostly female marketing team were, were unaware of about how you know complexion uh creates emotional anxiety in, in teenage men. Whereas if you hear a report about that, that's one thing, but you start to experience that through the lens of a young man talking to you about it emotionally, and it changes um, the inspiration level of the team who's creating, right? So they have a, they have a, a stronger purpose that they've, that they've been able to kind of ignite internally. And that helps also with them collaborating on it because they all kind of sense that main purpose. Yeah. And, and, you know, years from now or maybe months from, from then, you know, they'll be talking, Hey, do you remember when we talked to, you know, Joe um, in Chicago and what he said, I never, I'll never forget what he said. And I think that's the power of storytelling um, because they'll remember that and capture that experience as a story versus like a data point that's, you know, easily forgettable or easy to, to sort of gloss over, but they'll remember the emotion on his face when he's talking about, you know, whatever my acne or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I found that too. I did a project also in Chicago um, with a large insurance company right before healthcare reform, or actually no, right after healthcare reform um, was passed. So before it went into effect, uh, this, this big company did not understand the individual health insurance market. Um, so we did a lot of, you know, what we would call consumer connections, but, um, a lot of, you know, just living with these people, I mean, not literally, but kind of spending, um, a fair amount of time with them in their homes and just talking to them about individual insurance. And, and some of them are actually uninsured, um, interesting as well. And just the stories of the uninsured. I mean, I remember a guy I was talking to above, I mean, in this terrible part of Chicago, he was a former gang member. And we were talking about, you know, health insurance. And he said, I can't afford it. Um, I either have to decide to have insurance or to feed my kids. And I'm always going to choose to feed my kids. And then he he did some storytelling around his own experiences with the health system and and almost, you know, um, 
going bankrupt because he couldn't afford the health bills or the, the hospital bills after he was shot six times. My gosh. Uh, and so he lifted up his shirt and showed us his scars from, from where the bullets hit him. And we left that interview just like as changed people, like forget yes. about, forget about what our clients needed to hear. It took away me and my videographer, Joe, um, were like, look, we, we'd never been uninsured, you know, we'd never been uninsured because we couldn't afford insurance. We never had, had struggles like that. And we were changed because now we had a greater mm-hmm. sense of empathy for, for this guy who was, you know, again, lifting up his shirt, showing us his wounds. Um, mm-hmm. It was powerful. And you don't get that through any other kind of research. Yes. And, and what you said reminds me of the idea that I think that's why I like working with like teams over time is you do start to see that they change, right? Like they, 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 when you live in a world where you're constantly curious about people you don't understand and you're willing to shift perspective and that consistently happens, I, I've been with some of my clients for as long as 18 years and they are, they are the most incredible human beings because I think a lot of what they do for a living, and I thought so then, and I think so now, even more so. So it's 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 really it's been fun for me to start to experience um, empathy on a level that's allowing myself to have permission of like, okay, I don't have to be perfect, right? Like I can make mistakes. I don't have to be the perfect mom, you know. And those are the types of things that that I found to be um, innovative in my life. Yeah. Yeah. The word curiosity, you, you just kind of mentioned, I think that's, it's like the cost of entry, I think. Um, yeah. And it, I think it's what sets, you know, people who, who really, you know, love what they do, like love what we do, um, you know, who really make it like a lifestyle and a passion versus just a job. And you can almost tell like the, the people who join our industry, who, who are doing it, you know, not because they're curious, but because it's a paycheck. You, know, you could you could almost spot them because they don't bring that same enthusiasm to the to the work. But um, yeah, at one point I was running. You know, before I was before I was self employed, I was running a group of researchers, and you know, I used mm. to say to them like, "Our curiosity is our greatest strength. Like that's what's going to set us apart." Mm. Um, you know, from from other people who do what we do. And if we're not like naturally curious, if we're not just like excited about our own curiosity and excited about the unknown, um, then, you know, we should think about kind of making a move to, to doing something else. But I mean, I, I still consider, I mean, I've been doing this kind of work for a couple of decades now and I'm still, I'm still energized by, <laughs> by the kind of work we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what I would do otherwise, you know, I mean, there's the writing and there's the podcast, but you know, there's also three kids I'm putting through college at this point in time. So it's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what else, you know, where else do you take these skills? Yeah. Well, I also think that you, I mean, what I make up when I just see your list of books that you have um, is that you're probably really good at translating and transferring knowledge from other people's stories, you know, into something that is, uh, is, is in written form for some, you know, for other purposes. So it does make me wonder you know, where else can you 
create and connect in a way that is powerful. Like I, I keep wanting to have bigger conversations around some of the bigger problems that we're seeing in the world, because a lot of innovation is going to need to take place um, because there's disruption. And we know that innovation actually is, you know, the solution to disruption sometimes, um, you know, so I, I don't know, I, I just, I, I've been thinking a lot about like, how can, how can I be a part of, of creating more empathy in the world for greater problems to be solved, whether it's staffing or it's, um, you know, supply chain issues, you know, there's, there are things to be solved with this that we, that we do. Yeah, totally. Um, any other stories from the book that, that really stand out to you? I mean, is, is there, you know, one story that you consider your, your favorite in the book? <laughs> you know, as a classic uh, researcher, I, I asked all of my beta readers, which one was their favorite story and they all had different ones. Isn't that funny? <laughs> That's it's funny. But it's probably uh, probably a good thing that, that there were so many, you know, for, for people to choose from. Um, yeah. Yeah. Though, um, you know, I just, I just am, am so grateful that I've, I've been able to witness what happens when people get curious. I was in, just one of my favorites was when I was back, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years ago with a group and we were studying baby care and we were talking to this mom of a newborn baby and she was holding her baby and just rocking her. And we, we kind of knew that the area that we were studying was around more natural. And so, you know, that was where a lot of the focus of the questioning was. She was talking about it. That's why we recruited her. And so as she was talking, she went over to the refrigerator and she opened it up and she poured into a bottle some adult milk and then started feeding her baby adult milk as she was talking about how everything was all natural, everything. And so, you know, it, it was one of those moments where there was a, the, 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 the male marketing leader was like, why did you do that? You know, and, and, and then, you know, when she kind of uh, felt shocked and it was clear that she um, had been doing something that was very incongruent with what she was saying, she got embarrassed. And then um, as we kind of pulled her back into a place of curiosity, what became clear is that there was a whole other way of beliefs that we were not even aware of, of what her definition around all natural was and, and why she did what she did. And so um, what happened as a result of that is that they actually went into a whole new way of thinking about their products because of that one interview. And in fact, they had like tagline that was associated with where we, where we went with that creation based on that incongruency. And so um, what I loved about it was just the things that surprise us the most if we're willing to be curious like in that state, actually do change the course of things because it shifts our perspective because it, it, it creates a shock value because there's such a discrepancy that we can't understand. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit of, of just some of the, the pleasures I've had of, of learning things, learning new things that are so fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I, I have a series of questions that I, I like to ask everybody um, who, who does this uh, podcast. Um, and so I call them my hot seat questions. I have six of them for you. Uh, the first one's an easy one. <laughs> Ready? What was your favorite TV show as a kid? Um, Little House on the Prairie. Little House on the Prairie. Laura Ingalls, uh, <laughs> Laura Ingalls, right? Yeah. Um, favorite character on that show? Her. Okay. What about the sister? Um, I have to, I have to wonder. Um, <laughs> she, she went blind at one point, right? And my, my wife and I argue about this. Did she go blind in a fire, but also get her eyesight back in a fire? Do, am I misremembering this? I don't remember her getting her eyesight back in it, but that's, now you're making me curious about this. See, I'm writing myself a note. This is, so look, y'all have arguments about this? Well, we don't have arguments about it, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, my recall for things like Beverly Hills 90210 was much better than Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> to be completely fair, I wasn't as big of a fan, perhaps, as you were uh, with Little House. Uh, I'm shocked that you know any detail about it at all. Like, I'm seriously oh, shocked. That I, Look, that little Nellie Olson, man, she used to get under my uh, under my grill. But Paul playing the fiddle, come on. Um, <laughs> I love their good night routine. <laughs> right. It made me happy. Right. Is as good as the good night routine on the Waltons, if you remember that? Yep. Similar. All right. Um, all right. So little house in the prairie. Uh, how about this? How do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen when you have to write something? I'm, I'm thinking about my emoji cards right now. Um, <laughs> uh, anxiety, mm. anxious. Interesting. Uh-huh. Give me more. Why? Why anxiety? Why anxious? I need something to be on the paper. If something's on there, then I can go. Like if, even if I just wrote one sentence, had nothing to do with it, that helps me, but I need something. In fact, I actually don't usually start because of that anxiety. Um, physically looking at it, I'll just start with recording on my phone. Interesting, okay. Mm -hmm. Like text to voice kind of thing? Or? Yeah, yeah, I use Evernote. Very cool. Yeah, I always say sometimes, um, again, depending on what I'm writing, sometimes I'm I'm uh, excited um, to start something new. Um, that's usually if it's more creative, it's, if it's for clients. What, what you'll find is my house is never cleaner because I will find a thousand things to do before I have to write the first sentence. Totally. Is vacuuming, mopping. Yes. Uh, you know, all of the, the house will be nice and clean and tidy. My desk will have no crap on it um but your man. wife is happy but you're not at the end of the, of the experience <laughs> well you know if i do it all right she's happy but <laughs> we have different standards you see oh i totally get that um <laughs> all right thinking about uh you know publishing uh publishing this book what lesson about writing or publishing did you feel like you learned the hard way I've learned the hard way that I don't have to structure everything exactly right at first. Like let the story snippets be unraveled and out and then structure. Mm -hmm. I was, I think I was really intent on wanting to structure first because that's how I normally do reporting. And, and I, and I had a really hard time letting go of that. Yeah. 
What, you know, what I'm curious about is, um, what was it harder for you to do? Write the book or try to sell and promote the book? Oh, for sure. Right. I don't, I don't want to sell and promote it. I just want to write another one. <laughs> I mean, I just want people to just buy it because it's, it would hopefully help them. And then I want to write again. Like I have two more books I want to write. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I found is like, it's almost like writing is the fun part of it all. And then mm -hmm. the selling and, and promoting it is, which becomes the harder part because you, um, you, you, you realize just how much competition you have, mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with, I don't know how many thousands of books coming out every month and, and, you know, Kindle is, I don't know, there's how many millions of books are on Kindle right now. And, and, I don't know. So that, that, that was always the hardest thing for me, but thinking about lessons you've learned, um, what's the best piece of advice you would offer up to an aspiring author? So somebody who wants to kind of do what you just did. Take one step, just find someone who can keep you accountable. I, it, for me, that was like bar none the thing that helped me is that I found accountability and then it happened. Who did you, who did you approach to be accountable towards? So I, I sent out a Facebook notification. I got a book coach that helped me initially. And then through that whole process, I also found this um, program out of Georgetown, which is called the creators Institute. And they have a, an accountability system and it was wonderful for me because mm -hmm. I, I, I can't, I find it easier to be accountable to others than I do for myself. And if you don't give me a deadline externally, then I'm, I'm likely to just go vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Get clean, you know, vacuum me, get, get that house clean. Just like I do. <laughs> um, thinking about, uh, careers, um, if you, if you, you know, if you didn't have your career as a researcher or your kind of career as a, as a writer, new writer, um, what other career would you uh, want to try? What, what other hat would you want to, would you want to try on? I would want to do like four things, but the first two would be like, I'd love to have a, a, a show kind of like Oprah style where I get to interview people for the purpose of like creating connection for a bigger group, um, possibly like things that are uh, controversial. And the second thing I would like to do is to have some kind of like equine therapy type of program where I help uh, actually corporate executives like use a new form of um, way to see empathy occur through equine therapy. I've found that that's like horses are ridiculously empathetic. And so there's like 1200 pounds of empathy mirror neurons right. <laughs> within them. And so anyway, I, I think that would be super fun. You know, when you first said equine therapy, I thought you were going like horse whisperer type thing, like, like being a therapist towards horses, but now this is using horses for, um, you know, helping, helping others. Yes. Uh, interesting. Do you, do you ride? Are you, uh, are you into horses yourself? Well, my daughter 
is I grew up on a, a farm. So I actually kind of didn't have language for it, but I understood the power of horses when I was growing up. But then what happened is we moved to this, this house that I'm in now at the very beginning of COVID. We locked on it just the, the, the weekend before everything went down. And um, the house that I'm on, there are actually two horses that are being stabled here. And my, um, she, she needed a way to figure out a horse trade. So we traded and my daughter was getting horse lessons um, for, you know, stabling. And that whole experience helped me understand because I saw my daughter shift and change through all the trauma that she'd gone through with the divorce and COVID and moving. Um, it, it literally changed her for the good. And so I started studying equine therapy because I was curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look at that. There's that so, pesky curiosity thing coming in again. Yeah. How old, uh, how old's your daughter? She's 11. Okay. Tough. I mean, tough. I mean, look, I think having any kids of any age during COVID is, is tough. Um, but that's, that's a really tough age for the, uh, because that's still, it's, it's middle school age, right? I mean, just, yeah. yeah. Just getting into it. How yeah. old are your kids? Uh, we have triplets. They're 19. Um, so we, triplets. we, yeah, we saw their senior year in high school kind of cut short. Um, and then their freshman year in college was, was kind of wonky, but they're kind of into more of a groove now um, with it all. But uh, I mean, yeah, this COVID thing is still, I mean, it's horrible, um, but it's still like, they're not getting the experiences. They're not having the, the experiences they should be having. I mean, none of our kids are. No. Um, right now. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much that they're learning that, you know, like your age kid, right? It's almost as if, they're launching into the world. They're trying to fly off of the tree and, and the trees like unstable and, and because we don't even know where the trees get to fall or whatever. Right. So it's, it's a very um, interesting time for them. And, you know, speaking of empathy, I, I mean, that's something I would love to study more of is just like the impact and, and how to um, help people who are, you know, struggling with, emotional anxiety through a lot of this. So yeah. it's, but anyway, so I found that horses do, I, I I've seen it firsthand and I've, it's been very fun for me to study it, but I don't think you could really make, um, a living. I don't know if I could actually make money doing that. I'm afraid I would actually lose money. <laughs> it's impossible, but you never know. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. And, uh, our last question here in the hot seat, I mean, yeah. you could probably tell by my accent that, um, that I love country music, but, uh, Brad Paisley is one of my favorite, he's one of my favorite artists. Uh, he's got his tremendous song called letter to me, where he offers advice to his younger self in the form of a letter that he's written to his younger self. Uh, if you could write a letter to your younger self, April, what words of advice would you give your younger self? Oh, well, I would just tell myself that I'm amazing and do not let anyone tell you anything other than that. Um, write your own story, uh, create that which you are meant to create and don't let anyone dim your light. Cause I forgot that for a long time and remembering it and instilling that into my daughter, I think is the most important thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, you've got a light and you're going to let it shine. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people go to pick up uh, this fantastic book of yours, The Firestarter Igniting Innovation with Empathy? If somebody wanted to buy it, where could they go to get it? Amazon. Um, when COVID finishes, whenever that is, it'll be available actually physically in uh, Barnes and Noble and all the other retailers. But until then, you can get it on um, all the electronic devices where those are sold. So, okay. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, April, to, to get some more information about you or to interact with you somehow, where can they go to do that? AprilBellResearch.com is my website. All right. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn. Any social media you want to throw out there? Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm trying harder on that one, but I would say LinkedIn <laughs> and Facebook are where I'm, where you would find me. All right. Very good. Well, uh, April, this has been a very fun conversation. I've really appreciated you. I enjoyed it. And for all of you out there who uh, may uh, may have been listening, hopefully, uh, if you're you're still listening, um, if if I if my accent hasn't turned you off too much as it did April earlier, uh, <laughs> please feel free to tell a friend uh, about uh, this episode and uh, like, rate, and review us uh, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you very much, April. All the best. Thank you. I appreciate you. 